Today is Wednesday. I've been told it's November 29th, 2023. And it's 2.37, 8, 2.39 now in the afternoon. Hi, it's John Williams. Thanks for finding the Mincing Rascals podcast. Share us with your friends. Give us a good rating. Let's get more folks under the 10th. I think we do a nice job here. I know a lot of you do too. I've heard from some of you who listen to us and you listen to us a lot. So tell your friends and listen to me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. I'm Kate Plies, former Chicago reporter, now putting out the kind of strange uh, website, half novel, half Chicago history, Roseland, Chicago, 1972. What's the website for that? How do folks click on it? www roseland chicago 1972 that will bring it up um it's on substack so if you have the substack app that's also a great way to find it groovy i'm monica ang axios chicago reporter you can find me at axios.com slash chicago and i'm eric zorn the publisher of the picayune sentinel a weekly substack newsletter who has never heard uh, for years has not heard anyone use the expression www anymore i know that is so i I said that i know (laughs) very retro of you that is Very so 1998 retro. of you. I mean, or whenever, whenever we that used to be a big part of all the commercials we would read. And so backslash, then, backslash. I know. <laughs> so yeah, some, I left off the HTTP. So you know, <laughs> that. we would sometimes abbreviate it with three dub dot, as though that was going to save time. But even like the name of your Substack newsletter, if you, I think maybe the best way to tell people to find stuff anymore is just say type it in your browser. You know, Chicago Roseland. History, and then boom, it's there. Just as Lori Lightfoot became not just mayor, but the most difficult kind of mayor, a COVID mayor, Brandon Johnson, I would say, is now not just a mayor, but he's a migrant mayor. The singular thing that he has to deal with or around is that. We talk about it every day on the radio. Each week on this podcast, a lot of us talk about the care of these migrants with our friends. The same way almost four years ago, we were consumed with COVID talk. And today, today, the plan has been for a migrant camp to go up in the southwest part of the city, in Brighton Park, just south of the Stevenson Expressway, not far from a rail yard, north and east of Midway Airport. At the site of a former zinc smelter, we had a zinc smelt, 2,000 people are about to call it home. On the radio, I've been saying, who does this harm? Why is this not a good idea? That's a great question. And so this morning, I've been in touch with um, NRDC, National National Natural Resources Defense Council, and the University of Chicago's um, Physical Sciences Division to find out exactly what harms a former zinc smelting area might cause for workers, for residents, or for someone who is living in a tent above it. Um, They're still getting back to me. And I'm just surprised that um, that nobody has brought this up yet. Like, are there actual problems with sleeping in a tent for 60 days near a former zinc smelting site? And if so, what are they? And are those dangers actually um, uh, endangering the, the, the workers who are setting up the tents as we speak? Um, so I don't have that answer. I don't know how bad or good or neither it is. Um But I do know that you're seeing two different sets of protesters outside the site. You're seeing um, folks who, frankly, look like me. I'm half Chinese. A lot of Asian protesters out there basically saying we don't want people there. I was at a city council meeting and a woman who um, 
got up and identified herself um, as, as Chinese-American. She said she's been here 30 years. She spoke in Cantonese, and she said, we don't need more people here. Uh, we don't need these foreigners here. And, um, and uh, Nicole Lee translated for her. Um, and so there are those uh, protesters, and then there are those who say this is not safe. I mean, they they probably very, um, very justifiably say you shouldn't be building the airplane as as you're flying, um, meaning why are they building the the encampment while they're waiting for the results of the environmental assessment? Uh, the, the mayor's been called out uh, on that for a while. But um, but those who are saying this is dangerous, I just haven't heard them say exactly why it is dangerous. I think ideally you would want to do the environmental assessment and then build, but I just haven't heard it articulated why this is dangerous. Yeah, I have the same question. They talk about there being heavy metals, perhaps mercury on the site, uh, and apparently the city has done a study that we can't get a look at until maybe Friday as to exactly what's there. And and again, there may maybe there are trace elements there how dangerous is this if, if it's really dangerous why are they allowing people to be out there working building it these are all really good questions and the city's just been very slow to provide answers it may be that the site is somewhat uh, contaminated but that you know we live in a city that's that's contaminated in a lot of ways i i live a, not too far from uh, about a quarter mile from the kennedy expressway and for years there was you know lead problems in the soil here and it's, it's minimizing now that there has been lead-free gas but you know that my whole neighborhood was filled with with leaded soil and so on and when a lot of us live in houses with leaded paint and i mean it's and, and of course the lead feeder lines into the houses uh the, the water lines so it's not like everything else is is all pure and safe. And then the, if it maybe it is especially dangerous, but I, and again, the point that that John I've made with you before in this is like this doesn't seem like a very good solution to me putting people in tents. But I can't think of a better one right now. Winter's coming on, and we're not going to have houses and and apartments available for the people who are going to need them, and they have to have some place to stay, and police stations and airports are not the, not the answers. I was just going to push back a little bit on what you said about the pollution, Eric, because, I mean, obviously, yeah, we're, we're all living in the city with plenty of uh, airborne particulates every place, but I know I grew up on the southeast side right over the border in Dalton, and then most of my family's from Hegwish, and my husband's family's all from Roseland, and we just grew up with just constant garbage dump smells and factory smells and that sort of thing. And um, we liked it. We did not like it. <laughs> oh, my God. We did not like it. But that's just what it was. That's one thing. Okay. But for the city to purposely be building on a site that it knows could be contaminated with heavy metals, that strikes me as absolutely bizarre. And when I read what they're saying to reporters about it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What are, they say, what, what, what are you talking about there? The city acknowledges that they have to do an environmental assessment of it. They acknowledge it's not done yet. And yet they're starting to build it. And they're talking about, well, remediation is going on and remediation can be ongoing while we're doing this. It's very unclear to me how you can strip the topsoil and clean that all up while you're covering it with gravel and building camps at the same time. It just, it doesn't make any sense. The most utterly bizarre thing that I feel like I read about it 
to me shows that they know there's a possibility that there's going to be a problem here, which is that apparently, and Monica, you're obviously, you're reporting on this, so you can correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but the Garter World people have signed a contract in which they agree to not get paid for what they're doing over there if it turns out that there is an environmental problem and they can't use the site. I did hear that they um, that they will pick up and move it. Um, I didn't hear that part of the contract, and I really should take a look a closer look at the contract. I'll tell you what Ronnie Reese, who's the mayor's press secretary, sent me. Um, he says yesterday, Garda World delivered multiple pieces of equipment and material to the base camp at thirty seven ten South California. Uh, crews continue importing stone and grading the site. Today, Garda World will lay out materials, measure, and begin placing bases for structures on the site. If there are no complications, erection of the base camp may begin as early as Wednesday, so today. Additional details regarding environmental information will be provided this week. Again, common mitigation strategies are ongoing and anticipated for completion by the end of the week, weather permitting. Uh, the city is confident the property will be suited for the purpose for which it will be used. Yeah, I'm going to make a prediction that the research they're going to reveal on Friday is that it's okay and that there's some trace elements that we wouldn't want to be consuming daily, but it'll be safe for humans to be on top of for 60 days. And, you know, it's not like the zinc smelt just landed there. People have been living near it, maybe not on top of it, but it's been there all along. I don't know how long, but I mean, this isn't a brand new phenomenon. I can just see in the back of maybe the hearts or heads of everybody as well, it's better than what they got. So maybe it's dangerous. Maybe it's a little dangerous. I'm just copying what I think is maybe in the heart and head of some people. Don't put this down as my own view, but I'll bet that that is part of the justification or rationalization that our people are going through. They're like, well, look, they're from Venezuela. They had nowhere else to go. They were sleeping on the floor in a cop shop, and now we got them a place over here, and it'll be a heated tent. Not perfect, maybe not 100% safe, but good enough. And it was 17 degrees the other day. So so while we have this, like, zinc thing, God, it's not like this isn't complicated enough. We just couldn't even find a place to put these people. And I'm wondering about that. Monica, how did they come to this location then? Of all of the places, they picked one that has a whole other layer of issue, of of protest. Um, Well, every alder was supposed to come up with sites in his or her ward used some came up with sites some did not and the city said if you don't come up with sites we will come up with them for you this is 11 acres somewhat south of the 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 downtown and it seemed other than the the former zinc smelting to be an ideal site for it um although julia ramirez said that she was the the alder said that she was not contacted so it seemed that the city identified this site um, but again, you would hope that it would have been something that already had the blessing of the altar. But just because it has a blessing of the altar doesn't mean that the people want it. Poor Julia, she was she was attacked, or she was she was surrounded to the point where one of her aides had to be hospitalized. So um, this doesn't seem to be an easy thing for anyone. But here we are, and you're right. You know, I, I go to police stations and I talk to migrants and I take pictures of them and many of them don't have the luxury of sleeping on the floor of the police station having rats crawl all over them. No, they are outside in tents surrounding the police station. So if these are heated tents 
I guess one could say that a heated tent is better than a non-heated little, you know, pop-up tent outside of the police station or the park where I was talking to people, and there are dozens and dozens of them there. Is the the, the tents they're supposed to be weatherproof to like like forty degrees or something like that? That they that. They can stay heated to 70 if it's only down to 40 degrees outside. Pretty sure that's what I read. But that's yeah, not good. Well, that's we're going to have, a, we're gonna no, have an entire good. month or two where the average temperature is going to be well below that. It's going to be in the 20s. The, the average temperature is in the 20s in January in Chicago. Uh, so what, where does that put the temperature in these tents? That's a good question. I mean, obviously, one can put on a, a coat in a tent. But um, I think it's just, I think we ran the story today in Axios that said that they're predicting a fairly warm yeah. um, and, and relatively dry Chicago winter this year. Uh, no, no Illinois legislators are going to be broadcasting that because... They're actually hoping for a cold winter to keep. It's like it's like that Monty Python sketch where the architect says, "Yes, it's not built all that well, but if the if the tenants are relatively sedentary, we should be all right." <laughs> it's like, yes, if only the if the, if we don't get any bad weather, okay, we're fine. Let's exclude for a moment the temperature of the tent or the zinc. Those are not small things, but we would still be having a version of this conversation even if there was no environmental concern or weather concern, right, Monica? So what is the concern of the neighbors in any neighborhood, but in this case, Brighton Park? Well, if you can go by the protests, the, the comments at meetings and the protests, um, it's usually people saying that, it, that there's crime, that there's prostitution, human trafficking, um, possible drug use, drug selling in these areas. I should also note that these people in tents are also vulnerable to to. The same things to people stealing their things, people attacking them, um, and uh, they they well as the as the Chinese American woman said at the city council meeting, she just doesn't want more foreigners around here, and it's a lot of it sounds really frankly racist and xenophobic, and and it's very but, nippy. It's sort of like yeah, take care of this, just not in my backyard. I, I, we don't need any more foreign people here, but we do need that. I mean, that, like, isn't the irony that we we actually do need people here? We the Chicago's losing population, Illinois is losing population, or or not growing very fast, and we need we need workers. to help wanted signs everywhere, right? I mean, talk to the Illinois Restaurant Association and the Hotel Owners Association. They are dying for workers. They cannot keep their operations open because nobody is applying for these jobs, they say. Okay, but when you list all of those problems like crime and human trafficking and prostitution and drugs, are you saying that the fear is that the migrants will be bringing those issues or that they will be victims of those issues? That's what you hear from the people who show up at meetings. That they will be the source of these things. That they will be the source of them. Where do they get that? What makes them say that? There have been some citations that some people were illegally cutting hair downtown outside of one. Um, I have not seen any evidence that someone has been um, arrested for drug trafficking or prostitution. People say that's that's happening. But I think, you know, a lot of it stems, just from my opinion, I think a lot of it stems from xenophobia. Well, I completely understand that or suspect that. And so I think... It's very easy for, here again, us on the radio, to sort of repeat these accusations or charges. 
for which there's no evidence, not that I've read, heard, or seen. It should, I should say that I did hear about uh, two shoplifting incidents. <laughs> which <laughs> per capita we would well, settle for. Can't We can't pretend that all of these people who are coming up are all law-abiding citizens, that some of the kids aren't going to get involved in gangs and so on. I mean, but that's, that is normal. And the, the question is whether they are, are uniquely or especially prone to crime. And I don't see any evidence of that. Uh, and certainly if you keep them in poverty, poverty is, is correlated to crime. So the, the one answer has got to be to make sure that, that uh, these migrants have work permits and are able to support themselves because many of them clearly do want to support themselves. They want to work. They they went through a lot to get here. Uh, they don't seem like they're indolent people uh, or, or non-industrious people. If we can get them the proper permits to work, that would be, that would be a, a really good start to getting them permanent housing, getting them out of the tents and so on. I mean, that's, that's got to be a key part of this plan. You and I talked about that briefly on the radio, Eric, and I didn't have the statistic in front of me. I don't the source now, but my fairly solid understanding is that per capita, migrants commit less crime than residents of the country, city, or state, that they are not any more prone to any of these ills than the rest of us and statistically are less so. Maybe if we keep them living on the street long enough, they'll fall prey to all of that or they'll become part of that. But that's not that's not the case. So if if you said I'm, your, your neighborhood's going to grow by 2,000 people, you could do a lot worse than these 2,000 people. Unfortunately, they're living on an old zinc smelting site. You know, speaking of statistics, what I've been trying to track down for the last two months is how many of them actually got work permits after President Biden yeah. finally allowed it. I have not been able to see evidence of a single work permit that has been granted in that time. I've worked with the, um, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the, the Department of Human Services in Illinois. And what, what Human Services was able to tell me is that they have filed 260 applications. That was when I spoke to them last week. I said, did any of them come through? Does anybody now have a work permit to work legally since Biden made that call? And nobody's been able to show me any evidence. I'm really hoping at some point they do. Politico had, had a story, I think it was this morning, talking about, not, not Politico Illinois, but uh, the national branch of it, about in New York City, that the, the paperwork mess is just is is frightening and and the delays are, are even when they say yeah we're going to do this we're such a bureaucratic society that they just can't they just can't get it done and so a lot of a lot of these markets are resorting to working off the books which you know you got to feed your family right i mean i i don't i don't it doesn't outrage me at all and i certainly understand that you know you got <clears throat> you're going to go and work but it's da- it's dangerous to be working without any permit without any protection. You can't like sue an employer. We've got a story out of Denver about a, a lot of Venezuelan migrants there who are lining up at Home Depot. Are they bonded if they get hurt in a construction accident? No. But the, the Department of Homeland Security, it's just, I don't understand. I, I was on the phone with them for like almost an hour saying, can you tell me when you might be able to tell me about one documented Work permit coming through? Mm, we can't really say when. Well, can you can you give me an? Is it three? Have you have you issued three or four? We can't really say. I'm like I don't understand why this is so hard for you to tell me. Are they motivated? Do they care? Do you get a sense that they're frustrated like we are, Monica? They keep telling me we need comprehensive immigration reform, which is <laughs> yeah. well, duh. Absolute- yeah, yeah, I mean, right. call a talk show. But in the meantime, why don't you just do something about it? They're the people, right? Yeah, and, and they're not able to explain to me what the bottlenecks are because that that 
could solve a lot of problems. If people are able to make a decent living, it could clear a lot of these shelters out. So it's, it's a continually frustrating subject. So they line up in front of a Home Depot, and then people that are buying lumber for their project say, hey, get in the truck with me, and I'll hire you for the day, right? That's not a situation unique to migrants. You see sometimes at uh, the U-Haul place or the Home Depots that I've gone by, people standing on the corner looking for work, and you kind of get it. I don't know if they're legally here or not, but I think we all sort of understand what's about to happen, and we're happy to be part of it. Uh, You know, Eric, when you said, yeah, but then they don't have insurance and they can't sue and all of those things, I I know that's unfortunate or inequitable, but I also think that 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 would be the path that either they should take or somebody should pave. Uh, They don't even can't even be guaranteed to be paid a a minimum wage and they they could get stiffed they have no recourse uh they have no job safety requirements that they they're going to have to they can fall back on i mean i i just it's it's not a good system to have and of course at the same time they're not paying taxes and and you know they're probably being paid in cash and that's not good either i mean the whole uh, the whole thing is is really dysfunctional and as Monica's pointed out, the bureaucracy in this country is is just so slow, and this this is a pro- this is an urgent problem, and it's it just seems like our country is not really equipped to gear up and fight a problem like this or deal with a problem or or a challenge like mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. Uh, with any with any uh, dispatch. Talk briefly, guys, about the the black and brown people on the south and west side who see all this anxiety, all of this anguish about accommodating these migrants when, in fact, we don't seem to be as invested in helping them right now. How fair is that complaint or observation of theirs? Every single time you go to a city council meeting and there are the public comments at the beginning, there are always um, African-American commenters who get up there and basically call Brandon Johnson a traitor. They say, you are prioritizing foreigners and outsiders and non-Chicagoans over us. Where was the $30 million a month when it came to helping Englewood or Auburn Gresham? And he has to take it. I mean, he hears this at every city council meeting and, and alders say the same thing. Um, and it's it's I can see how hurtful that would seem. And for the longest time, he has said, we have to be able to try to help everyone. Um, you know, when, when it came down to putting in place these 60-day limits, it seems like that may have been responding to some of those claims, but it's 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 a big glaring question. I don't think any everybody's going to be you know satisfied with two different buckets of money because it just doesn't seem fair to a lot of people. What is it that you think that they would like to have been in, uh, invested in their communities more housing, schools, just hey, why did our neighborhoods? Why did our mental health clinics close? Why do all the Jewel and all these close? And then how about the homeless on our streets? Where where do they get to sleep? How about six months of rental assistance for us? With the Brighton Park location, since it's it's just an empty location, it, it is easier to see that there might be more xenophobia and just overall fear involved there. But there's have been a lot of places and Woodlawn is a good example where it's perfectly understandable, really, that the people who live in that community are feeling overlooked. In Woodlawn, the Wadsworth School that got turned into a migrant's shelter, um, the community had been trying to get reopened as a community center. 
for years and years. And of course, the city can never come up with the money, never does it. And then all of a sudden, poof, it can happen for this purpose. To me, it is perfectly understandable that they feel that way. And and that's kind of the the issue here is is that there is a conflict in where the resources go. The, the resources are not infinite. So we can't completely pretend that we're not spending some resources on migrants that could have been spent on Chicagoans. I think the the number that I hear, and I don't know exactly where it comes from, is a potential of 60,000 homeless people in Chicago. I really don't know exactly how they get there from the snapshot that they do yearly of people on the street on one single night. That is a number that gets thrown around. And I think we all know, we all see, I certainly see homeless people every day in my neighborhood and everywhere else I go in the city, really. I I can't think of a single neighborhood where I don't see some homeless people anymore. I think that number is based on the the number of people who, through the course of of one year, are unhoused which is not the same as sleeping on the street and mm-hmm. when they take this 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 annual count okay. the number is far far lower because they're just yeah, counting people who exactly. are actually in the shelters and on the street but but uh i mean it's it, the number is still too high and we still need and, and now we really need a lot a lot of more more room for them yeah the snapshot actually from 2023 was a little over six thousand homeless people on the street that night when they counted and that had gone up from not quite four thousand 2023 was six thousand but does all 2023 yeah but so does this assume though that the money that was that is going to be spent or is being spent for migrant care could have been used for the poor or the homeless in Chicago. I don't know that were it not for this, they would get that money. For instance, has any money been subtracted from resources that are dedicated to the homeless and poor in Chicago? I think mm-hmm. not. Every time Lori yeah. asked that, she said nothing has been taken from those funds. That said, um, you know, for the longest time we were hearing that the state was not going to be kicking any more money this year into um, migrant aid. And suddenly... Uh, J.B. Pritzker has a press conference and says, ta-da, I came up with $160 million. And we're all like, where did it come from, dude? Where did that money come from? Yeah. And he said, um, the Department of Human Services has a line item that is for wraparound services for Illinois residents. Could that $160 million have been used for other Illinois residents? I don't know. You didn't really call him dude, did you? By, just by way of... <laughs> Uh, Kate, you said it's perfectly understandable that these people would react that way, and I think it's perfectly predictable that they would, and I guess it is understandable, but if uh, we're prioritizing our sympathies, mine are more to the migrants than they are to the people who aren't sleeping on the floor of a police department or in a tent on Lakeshore Drive. Some of them are mind you, but we're just talking about a whole population of people who are utterly without resources here. It's like there's a fire and you've got to put it out. Maybe I'm um, an outlier in this. You know, our news click, our daily web poll question, which is thoroughly unscientific, but sometimes instructive. We asked, should the city of Chicago be providing shelter for the newly arrived migrants? That was it. Not here or there or this way or that way. Should, Should we even provide shelter this winter? 69% said yes. I was amazed at how many people said no. That's discouraging to me. It is sad. I mean, obviously, I agree with you. They're here, and we do 
have to house them. We can't just leave them freezing on the street. I'm sure we all agree with that, that once they're here, we we must do everything we can. Well, but John's point is that, no, we we don't all agree with that, that 40% no, of the audience- just us. Just oh, okay. four or five well, good around people. the table here, yeah. The five good okay. ones. All right. yeah. I am, you know, hearing from readers and from commenters, certainly at City Hall, uh, you know, a growing weariness with the issue, and even from politicians, frankly. And so I don't know if you guys saw the New York Times had that um the piece Jonathan Swan and Maggie Haberman um talked to uh to Trump aides saying that he would crack down on migration and put everybody in cages and send them out. And I think he was tapping into sadly a growing weariness, at least in New York, Boston, Denver, and Chicago, where the migrants are being sent with the issue. I don't want to know what people are gonna say inside that voting booth. I think that the some of the weariness though is a result of the lack of any leadership or direction from the city just speaking from chicago right like if we had had a plan all along we wouldn't be so weary i think our weariness isn't because two thousand people are scattered around the city twenty thousand it's because we we just we're beating ourselves up about what even to do about it and then we finally come up with a place for at least two thousand of them and damn it's on a zinc thing and now what the hell are we going to do and 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 what i'm getting a little tired of is brendan johnson's speechifying about the good nature of the churches and the people of Chicago that are showing what we're all about, it almost felt like passing the buck to me because he said, well, wait until Friday and I'll tell you what we're going to do or we'll manage these concerns you have. The churches are ahead of you on this. You're the mayor. You've known about this before you became mayor. How is it that it's taken us this long? I do think that Brandon Johnson having this, you know, constant, um, you know, just all optimism, all sunniness, as long as we're wonderful and as nice as we can be, everything will be fine. And if it isn't, it's because we haven't been nice enough, basically. That kind of attitude is, I think, irritating to people. Yeah. It, it It is a problem. Let's acknowledge it's a problem. It's a federal problem. I personally don't really understand why even the Democratic mayors can't just kind of suck it up and band together with even, God forbid, the governor of Texas together to say, we're all in this together. It's a federal problem. Let's all go to Washington together and demand that it be dealt with in a national way instead of this absolutely crazy system. It's not even a system that's going on now. But that that does need to include potentially controlling the number of people who are coming in. It certainly happened, and it's been happening in Europe, that uh, right. the, the flood of immig- immigrants has energized the right wing there. Exactly. The problem with going to Washington and asking for money is that Congress is completely dysfunctional and couldn't pass it couldn't it's not going to pass an extra spending bill for the for the migrants. I mean, I think that I can't imagine the Republicans going along with that. This point, and they're probably what even if, some conservative. But what right? if the Republican like governors banded together with people like Brandon Johnson and and Eric Adams? They to don't want to, but they don't want to do that, Kate. They yeah, they, they really. like the fact that they're sending these little human missiles to Democrat cities, including the one that's going to host the DNC. I've asked my colleagues in D.C., I said, you know, so so what everyone's saying is the answer is comprehensive immigration reform. And my colleague said, Gee, this is a political winner for Republicans. 
pointing the finger at Democrats and saying, wah, wah. And so why would they try to stop it? Why would they try to stem the I think the biggest misunderstanding that our listeners have, too, maybe your readers, is that these people that are in Chicago are not here illegally. They're legal asylum seekers, and that our declaring ourselves a sanctuary city was not an invitation to to this problem. They aren't all here because we said we're a sanctuary city, and they are not here illegally. Well, it it depends on who you're talking about. Some uh, did not use the app to get in here. Some did make their appointment through the app. Some are going to file for asylum. Others are here under TPS. It's a very complicated system. There are at least three to four buckets of people um, who have very different um, rights and standings, and we'll go through different procedures uh, to to gain either citizenship or a green card. And then you have 180,000 undocumented people who have been in Chicago for a long time, who are a little upset that the new arrivals are getting TPS and are getting work. What does TPS stand for? Temporary protected status. Anybody who is a Venezuelan national who came here before July 31st, Um, can get temporary protected status and a work permit. Others who maybe came here uh, without declaring what they're coming in with can um, apply for asylum. It's a very long process. Once you get the lawyer and do all the paperwork and present your claim, you can't get a work permit for six months. So some people who were thinking of applying for asylum are going to go with TPS now. So so, so the TPS people are are completely separate from the asylum seekers or are they... Well, now you're seeing a Venn diagram. You're seeing people who were going to apply for asylum saying, wait a minute, if I apply for TPS, I can get a work permit hopefully in two months rather than six months after I file all my paperwork. And frankly, uh, some Chicago officials are telling uh, migrants that they're not doing themselves a favor talking to journalists and saying, hey, I came here because I wanted better schools for my kids or I came here because I, um, I wanted a better job. Those are not asylum claims. Economic hardship is not an asylum claim. You have to fear for yourself because of some sort of political or other um, status you have back in your country. And so they say that they're screwing themselves and they're screwing their future asylum claims by telling journalists things like that. Well, of course, that is part of the issue that the entire asylum system is kind of broken since that is not what it was meant for. But let me just give one more thing for my Pollyanna notion to say, if people like Brandon Johnson and Eric Adams got together and said, hey, we now agree with you, Texas Governor um, Abbott, that we do need to do something about this. We do need comprehensive reform. We do need to control the border a little bit. Come come work with us on that. Come come with us to Washington. You say you want to control the border. You don't you're not just trying to complain for political points. Let's get together and do this together. And then let them say no. I can't talk you off that cliff, can I? That's, that's I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that if they did that and uh DeSantis and Abbott would not cooperate, yeah. it would it would just show, you know, that they're that the Republicans are completely insincere about trying to fix this, at least before the next presidential election. Monica, well, I think they're really. It would be a good strategy, in my opinion. What Dick Durbin says to me, he says that he and McCain um, miraculously passed uh, an incredible bill for comprehensive immigration reform. He said Republicans killed it. 
in the House. I, I, I just I just think that the Republicans are are just licking their chops about the prospect of there being thousands of migrants in Chicago during the convention next summer, the Democratic convention and, and split speed, <clears throat> split screen coverage of, uh, you know, maybe migrant protesters and so on um, going along with uh, and, and people living in tents and tent cities in the city where the Democrats are holding their convention. I, I think they're they're very excited about that prospect. Did you see or hear the video or the audio of Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana who was questioning at a Senate hearing this week a professor from Yale who studies crime, or actually I think it was health, but crime is a function of health in a way, or uh, one or the other, and he said that Chicago is like this national shooting gallery, and can you explain to me why it is? Let me ask you this. Why do you think that Chicago has become America's largest outdoor shooting range? Do you think it's because of Chicago citizens uh, who have no criminal record but, but who have a, a awfully a gun in their home for protection or perhaps for hunting? Or do you think it's because of a finite group of criminals who have rap sheets as long as King Kong's arm? So Mississippi, Louisiana, and Missouri actually have higher firearm death rates. Um, obviously, there's certain... What about Chicago? So I don't live in Chicago. It's not my primary area of research. You don't have an opinion on that? I think there's easy access to firearms compared with, combined with environmental conditions, uh, lack of great education. There have actually been studies showing that when you green vacant lots and repair abandoned buildings in urban neighborhoods, you see decreases in gunshots, in violence, as well as in stress and depression in the neighborhoods around them. No disrespect, Doc, but that... Sounds a lot like word salad to me. That's a word salad, and nobody understands what you're talking about. And I thought she was making perfect sense. I've I've heard word salads. <laughs> we have a mayor who's good at them. This was not a word salad. I don't know why I'm on that tangent all of a sudden here. It came up. But it's, <laughs> it's really remarkable to hear. Monica, I'm looking at you. Is there anything else you want to add? Well, I mean, if it's going to be about Burke, last week there was witness testimony talking about how he gave up salt and pepper shakers to um to one of the the gentlemen who he thought might be able to give him some property tax uh business and so we'll be looking at burke's famous penchant for creating and distributing custom-made swag (laughs) i thought it was just his book i thought it was just his books that he handed out but he has other items as well Hats, Ed Burke hats, um, hams. Those weren't those weren't branded, but um, a good friend of mine, who's actually a good friend of um, Eric and Johanna's, uh, when I go over to his house, I, I notice that there are these incredible salt and pepper, like I, I want to say pewter salt and pepper grinders that say Ed and Ann Burke. Wow. Um, Got those at a dinner. Those those were also the bribes, the the gifts that were given to someone. <laughs> well, so, well I, I just real quickly, how you're following this trial, Monica, maybe closer than than I am. Certainly, what, what's your take on it so far? Um, it's going about as 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 I thought it would. You know, laying out. You know, this this particular instance where someone felt like someone 
with, that Burke was leaning on them for a favor and this particular instance where Burke was leaning on them for a favor, I didn't expect the swag to come up. I didn't expect so many people to get COVID and I didn't expect the dogs to be barfing in the um, courtroom. <laughs> but it's going just, you know, in terms of, of the stories of laying out this practice, this alleged practice of leaning on people for favors is kind of how I thought it would go. I thought that the post office case, a uh, portion of the case uh, would bear more fruit than it is to me so far. That's the $600 million redevelopment of the post office. There's a developer that was going to come in. They had to get the water working in the old post office again. And Burke figures that if he can expedite the water and help the developer out, that maybe they'll throw their tax business to him. And on a phone call, Danny Solis captures Ed Burke saying exactly that. Make sure you recommend our firm. To his contractor, so just wanted to let you know that. Well, while you're at it, recommend uh, the good firm of Crafter and Burke to do the tax work. <laughs> All right. I, I certainly will. And uh, we can certainly uh, talk about a marketing uh, arrangement for you. Okay. All right. He said it in sort of a almost humorous, you know what I mean, rib tickling kind of way. And I'm sure the defense is going to say, of course, he'd like the business. It wouldn't be a crime if Danny said, hey, I know somebody who does that kind of work. But is that the smoking gun? And I thought, I don't think it is. The way it was said, I didn't think it was the thing that was going to convict him. Yeah, that was that was less powerful than I thought it would be. Um, the the field museum stuff felt like there's there seemed to be a, a threat, like you know you're not going to get your your admission hike because I'm the head of the finance committee, and if I recommend that the park district doesn't do that, that felt um, like like there was an implication there. But yeah, I mean, if they're looking for a smoking gun, I don't think we've seen. I, I I wonder if they've got some more, if they've got some bigger fish that they're going to throw our way. But um, I hate to say time will tell because editors hate that. But <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we've heard. But, you know, the, but there was two parts of that comment, too, where Burke says, on the one hand, it'd be nice if you recommended my good firm. And then he says to Danny Solis, he says, and then we can talk about a marketing arrangement for you. There's a euphemism for cash under the table. Um, Danny Solis isn't in the marketing business. He said, we can, make, we can talk about a marketing arrangement for you. Monica, what does that mean? Or Kate, what do you think that means? Well, I guess we all know what that really means, right? He's going to get a kickback under the table for recommending the good law firm of Clafter and Burke. And actually, I, I, I don't know if it's going to be the smoking gun, but I feel like that is the strongest thing that's come out so far in the whole trial. I mean, as we were talking about, I think last week, Week, I really felt like um, he just did sound like a grouchy old man as far as the Field Museum was concerned, and just kind of throwing out in the middle of a conversation that he was mad as opposed to a direct threat against them. So I, I really felt like he, he might skate on that one. But this, this is... Uh, uh, I don't know how you take that any other way. The words did come out of his mouth. <laughs> they absolutely did. And they and they talked about it again later in the videotaped meeting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, which, I saw that too. Um, if anybody didn't see that on the news, um, you can get the videotaped version very uh, quickly from the Cranes version 
of the coverage. And they talk about it again. And he talks specifically about, um, oh, what's, I forget his exact wording, but he says, yeah, we're going to figure out something for you. We just have to be careful to make sure we do it right so it doesn't look like something illegal. You know, the thing about Alderman Burke, I've heard a lot of people during this coverage say that he seems to not have any sense of himself, that he's, you know, just completely self-absorbed, that kind of thing. And um, he's not like that in general. Like at city council meetings, that 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 delivery that you heard, you know, while you're at it, recommend the good firm of Clapter and Burke, that's his typical sort of delivery. He's always kind of half laughing at himself when he... And says you, stuff like that. But and how do you and so what's the implication of that? That he um, is well. What I what I mean is, um, it's that's why it it looks a lot better on paper than it 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 than than how it will play when you listen to it from a jury because he sounds like he's kidding around mm-hmm. and he does that all the time. Okay, remember the field museum, the guy whose goddaughter he was trying to um, well, it was his goddaughter. And he was trying to get uh, that field museum internship for former alderman Terry Gabinski's daughter. Um, yeah, yeah, daughter. That was his daughter. And um, when Gabinski retired from the council after being there himself for like 25 years at least, and this was back in the late 90s, alderman, you know, they did their, all their farewells for him and, and alderman Burke being very good friends with him. Um, well, he would anyway make the longest speech because that's what he does. But he made he he was really funny. He was like, yeah, and I'm just going to recommend that Alderman Gabinsky, you know, you might want to look into uh, lobbying. You might want to, you know, tell these potential uh, clients. So you might want to point out to them how you will get the run of the the city council floor and that will, you know, get you our ears and, and that sort of thing. And, and everyone was just laughing uproariously. Really? Really? Yeah, because because right now aldermen, when they retire, they alone among anyone else have a right to go onto the council floor during meetings or at any time. Nobody else can do that but former aldermen. Really? So, so yeah, so they become lobbyists and then they can just go talk to their pals on the council floor and lobby them. That's his persona. Well, the jurors don't know that. They don't know his history. They exactly. aren't from Chicago. So on fresh right, ears, right. maybe that will look – because of the of the one-two punch of that Clafter and Burke tax work, the second part was the one that was almost damning or sinister, you know, and mm-hmm. we'll talk about a marketing arrangement for you. There's there's a whole nother tuna <laughs> or yeah. or Chicago speak line out of this uh, trial so far. I, I still am not hearing the outrageous behavior, uh, this outrageous evidence of corruption that is going to get a jury all fired up enough to con- you know get twelve <clears throat> men and women on that jury to convict. Right now, I, I just I haven't. I, the defense argument's going to be, yeah, he, he wanted the business. Yeah, he was grumpy to the uh, to the uh, field museum, and uh, but but nobody ever followed had to follow through even the Burger King thing. It's like he never got what he wanted out of this. He was just kind of blowing smoke. And of course, that was Blagojevich's defense uh, also that Blagojevich had all these schemes. But there was there were a lot of other things that Blagojevich did actually do 
like you know the way he treated the children's hospital and so on that mm-hmm. that um, that really dirtied him up i think and, and made it easier to convict him on these other things i i'm just i haven't i've been reading these stories and i haven't I haven't had this like you know throw down the newspaper and anger and, and fury <laughs> at the corruption it's you know it seems very garden variety um heavy-handed use of your influence but I don't know. So far, I haven't seen it, but but uh, I'm not in, I'm not in the courtroom. So well, I've been thoroughly frustrated by it all, but I completely agree with you, Eric. That there's not one thing where he says, "Okay, here's the deal." They don't get it unless I get money, you know, in my pocket, and then it happens. You you just for f- what did we say? Four years of uh, or is it five? of evidence gathering and all of the resources and all of the wires and all of the the guy was talking to the microphones and cameras for years he didn't know and they don't have anything so far that I've heard Eric that is the big gotcha so I'm with you I'm with you on it but I'm thoroughly disgusted or dismayed by the kind of behavior we're reading about. But, yeah, is this going to put the guy in jail? I don't know. You know, one of um, our stories that the Tribune had mentioned that, of course, his wife, Ann Burke, is a former chief justice of the Illinois Supreme Court. And Ray Long or maybe Jason Meisner, whoever was writing that piece, rather in just they had half a sentence that sort of inferred that it was no coincidence that her husband, as powerful as he was, that she was the chief justice of the Supreme Court as though he used his influence to somehow get her into that position as well. I always had the highest regard for her. I was always mystified by the relationship. But I always thought she was a good person, a public servant. I I didn't have any problems with her. I see the two of them with these withered looks on their faces coming in and out of the courtroom every day. It's kind of a pathetic picture. I think their point was that um, it was because of him that she got slated for her first judgeship. And, of course, his clout would have have helped all the way along. But, you know, both things can be true. I I think you're right that Ann Burke has uh, an extremely good reputation. You really never hear a bad word about her. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Um, So, I mean, both things can be true that she wouldn't have gotten – a judgeship and then ultimately to the Illinois Supreme Court were it not for for that and that she herself uh, plays it straight while she's on the bench. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Both things can be true. One last thing I wanted to talk to you guys. Eric, I read the story and was a little um, perplexed by the details. But for just a minute, let's talk about suburban prep basketball and Hinsdale South. There is a really good player who is barely on the team and isn't getting to play right now. There's a lawsuit involved as well. Can you sort of tell us that story? Yeah, I'll I'll summarize it. He's a senior. Brendan Savage is his name, and he was all-conference in his sophomore and junior years, and he scored 35 points against Proviso East last season. Very, very good player. But last year, he didn't get along with the varsity coach, whose name is Michael Moretti, and he filed a complaint with the school district saying that the coach had, uh, had bullied him. And the district found that the coach didn't bully him, but it said that the coach's interactions and communications were inappropriate and inconsistent with the high standards of professionalism expected of uh, such employees. And they demoted the head coach uh, from varsity to freshman. 
Michael Moretti. And then they uh, uh, elevated uh, um, uh, a new coach, the, the coach who was the sophomore coach, um, uh, whose name is, is Belcaster. And Belcaster ended up during tryouts this year cutting Brandon Savage from the team. Uh, again, this this kid uh, was a star player, sophomore and junior years all conference. I mean, it was about as flagrant and blatant uh, an instance of <laughs> yeah. of retaliation. And, and evidently uh, uh, that uh, Belcaster and, and Moretti are, are friends. So it was a very, very obvious case of, of um, retribution, uh, you know, abuse of power. Yeah. Talk, yeah, retribution, abuse of power. And you know, so you see the headline and, you know, the headline online was like, Parent sues after son cut from basketball team, and you're thinking, "Oh my God!" You know, this is one of these these uh, helicopter suburban parents whose whose precious little child has been denied an opportunity, and he's and this child has never been told no. We're going to sue. It's not the case at all here. The case is a is of a, a, a grotesque abuse of power on the part of this coach. I mean, I, I can see no possible reason. There's no allegation that the kid broke. You know, he he was drinking or burglarizing houses or anything like that this is just as clear a case uh, of retribution as i've ever seen and what is appalling to me right now first of all he is back on the team the uh, the school board voted him in back on the team on monday night he the didn't school play. board voted the kid the school board voted the kid back on the team the hinsdale township school board reinstated him to the team on monday night he did not play on tuesday during tuesday's home opener but he's apparently going to be uh, suited up to, to play on Friday when the team plays on Friday. And the question is, of course, is the coach going to play him and what's the coach going to do? And and he was playing games with reporters after the game on, on Tuesday night. He was saying that he, they would ask him questions like, how, how are you going to handle this? And he's like, I can't hear you. I don't know. And I can't hear you. And they would ask these questions and the coach walks away. So not only is he a tyrant, he's an immature tyrant. And the fact that Hinsdale South hasn't fired this guy is unconscionable. And the fact that they haven't, disciplined everybody who was enabling him in doing this after it's become clear what happened sure. is also unconscionable. I mean, I and I, apparently the district isn't something of an uproar as students are wearing uh, T-shirts in support of, of Brendan Savage. And uh, it's, it's just a great, great story. I mean, it's an appalling story, but it's a really interesting story. And uh, uh, I hope that the kid comes back and, and uh, scores a lot of points and the team does well. And then he goes to Michigan and <laughs> bring back that sorry, brings back that sorry basketball program. <laughs> but you know, it's funny because they said, "Okay, the varsity coach has so abused his position that he can't be the varsity coach. So let's have him coach the fourteen-year-old freshman team." Like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. If he's not suitable to coach the seniors, why is he suitable to coach the? Fr- if I'm the freshman oh, parent, I'm like, wait a minute, what? I, how do I got this guy? This is crazy. Excellent. That point. was the yeah, part I, mean, I could not figure out. Right? <laughs> the, the, the school said he didn't bully your son, but his behavior was completely inappropriate. <laughs> but he didn't actually bully him, so he didn't actually break any policy. Yeah. But okay. We'll sink him down to the freshman level. Eric, you haven't have you not seen anything about what the actual allegations were? Yeah, I'd like to know what that non-bullying but know. inappropriate behavior was. Yeah, was he yelling at the? I don't understand. I don't understand. Well, I have I haven't seen anything. My guess is that from dealing with coaches and watching coaches and being coached over the years is it was probably one of these hard-ass coaches who would yell and swear and um belittle their players and and uh 
Brendan Savage wasn't having any of it. So yeah. uh, I, I don't I don't know how awful it was, but it was bad enough to get him demoted. But the fact that the that the new coach decides to I mean what he could have done clearly and in, in much more subtle ways kept him on the team, but you know not played him as much as maybe he should have, uh, which would have been. Again, awful, but probably a little bit harder to file a lawsuit on. This is this was just so blatant. You cut you cut your star player. I wonder for what, no reason. Okay, but then you sue them for what? Um, not enough minutes, not enough uniform. T- well, you, what is the? Yeah, you can't. Well, you can't now. Of course, the the uh, that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch, which is that he is reinstated to the team. And the guys, the family lawyer, the, the Savage family lawyer has been saying that, uh, you know, yeah, you can't put him on the team and then not play him because that's that's still punishing him. But but then then you're getting into micromanaging a coaching decision. And that's a that's a tougher area. Well, that's to why into. I'm shocked I, that the school board took it upon themselves to. I didn't know this. I didn't know a school board could decide who wears a uniform on the basketball team. I think the school board could appoint a coach or approve a program, but I didn't know that they could say this kid is on the team and that kid is not. Like if I was the school board, I would say that's not our job. We are not interested in micromanaging at that level, yeah. but we'll be happy to fire the coaches. I mean, that's Yeah, I think that's what they should have I think that's what they should have done. I think it is it was kind of weird that they reinstated the kid to the team. Even though he clearly belonged on the team, it does that does seem like something that would be out of the purview of the of the school board. But but uh, again, what a what a mess! What a what a mess! And what a terrible thing for that adult coach to do. So yeah, there's a lot of school boards in the country that are glad they don't have to deal with COVID anymore and all of that masking and not masking, hybrid or not hybrid. And say okay, whew, we got all that done. Wait, what? Wait, the yeah. coach did what? And I, I did see, Eric, where the coach was did hear a couple of questions from the press, but then suddenly when they said, now, what about this kid? Is he going to get to play? Is he going to wear a uniform? That's when he feigned a hearing problem and then just walked away. That's bad that's bad management. I mean, there's you can say, look, it's matters under litigation. I can't comment on it. Yes, exactly. And I mean, that yeah. would have worked. It's a personnel issue that everybody walks away with. It's a personnel matter. We don't talk about those. And I was ready to put on my boomer hat when producer Pete first told me about this. I said, well, you know, when I was a kid, if you had a bad attitude, that was just as bad as not making your free throws. They'd throw you off that you wouldn't be on, that you would be benched if you look cross-sided to coach. You don't do that. And the world has changed. Kids and families are much more empowered, if you will, and sometimes I think too much so. But I'm with you, Eric. This doesn't seem to be one of those cases. This seems to be one of its own, one of its own sort. If he were really insolent to the coach, if he had broken team rules, yeah, that's a totally different story. But that's that's not what happened here. I wish my parents would have sued the coach. I should have gotten to play a little more. But I, <laughs> I didn't know what to think as I was reading it, because without knowing even the allegations, you're kind of up in the air going, well, who's right? Who's wrong? Mm-hmm, were they? Mm-hmm. Were, was the parent just expecting too much? Was the kid oversensitive? And then you get to the current coach cupping his <laughs> yeah. hand around his ear yeah. and pretending he can't hear anything from the reporters. And you're just like, okay, no. Apparently, everything the child and his parents said must be true. So here in Chicago, we've had problems at every level of athletics. The Chicago Bears, uh, really all of our teams have had coaching and management issues. The Northwestern Wildcats um, had to get rid of their coach and have had problems in three different departments. And now 
Hensdale South has uh, its own unique coaching story. So I guess it'll be incumbent upon us to next week, when we drop the next issue of the Mincing Rascals podcast, Eric, report back to us on how Hensdale South did. Did this young man get to play? And what the latest is on that, because I'm really curious to see now if he's going to get the ball or if he's even going to be able to step on the on the floor during the game. Yeah, uh, just a really interesting sidelight is that <clears throat> all the problems at Northwestern, the, the the interim coach was then was recently named permanent coach and was just named Big Ten Coach of the Year. Yeah, right. He's got them. I mean, I thought this was going to be a year for yeah. Northwestern that they would lose almost all of their games. They would have lost a lot of players. They would have lost a lot of recruits. And everybody just couldn't wait for the season to be over. They're going to a bowl game. They're going to a bowl game this year. And the, kids really have, and the kids really played for that coach. And remember, this was the same coach who wished that the kids had not worn a Us Against the World t-shirt before the season started. And I thought, you know, really, guys, it's not that. It's, it's not that. But that was kind of a rally cry from some of yeah. the assistant coaches and kids. And I thought that was wrongheaded. And he didn't put the kibosh on that. But turns out he's... He's done a real nice job with that program this year. Yeah, the 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 story the story of David Brown, that coach there, is is the story that we kind of were hoping that the Tyson Bajan story might be right. The, <laughs> the, the guy who comes out of nowhere becomes a hero, and you know Bajan was pretty mediocre as a fill in quarterback for Justin Fields, but 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 David Brown has. Uh, He's the real deal, evidently. I mean, like you said, he coached them to a oh, they're seven and five now, I think, or something like that. Or, mm-hmm. No, they I just mean, they're, they're definitely going to. They beat to Illinois. They beat Wisconsin. Yeah. Kate Plies, Monica Ng, Eric Zorn, all part of the podcast this week. I'm John Williams. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman, and uh, we'll drop another podcast on you next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. That was really fun. Kate, um, nice job. Thanks, yeah, thanks, Kate. Thanks, thanks, Kate. It was good. Bye. Great. Adios. Bye. Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.